book to find. Psalm 19, this is a a prayer, a, a song that David wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. Word of God says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their measuring line goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray. Father, I, I, I wonder how much this morning we really believe that your words are to be desired more than gold. I wonder how much we really believe that your words are sweeter than honey. Father, we still struggle with sin even though we are saved, and we struggle with conflicting appetites. There are times where a TV show seems sweeter than your word. There are times where a sporting event seems more desirable than you, or a video game, or food, or other pleasures. Father, open the eyes of our hearts. We may see the wondrous things that are in your law. Change our spiritual taste buds so that we hunger and crave you more. We do not give you glory when we crave other things more than you. We do not give you glory when we crave other things more than your word. Father, remind us this morning that we shall not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from your mouth. And those words are sweet. Help us with that. And help us as we hear and meditate on your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good morning and happy Mother's Day. I hope you guys are having a wonderful day. And I hope, men, that you are going to treat these ladies 
like queens today and take care of them and go home and do all the dishes and do all the laundry today and clean the house and prop her feet up on a pillow and give her a glass of lemonade and all those things you need to do on Mother's Day. Right, men? Uh, It's a very unenthusiastic agreement there. It is a good day. We're continuing with our Jesus Tribe series this morning. And as I was thinking about the Jesus Tribe and this, this, uh, us being the people of God, the family of God, you can't talk about being the people of God without talking about the fact that God has given his people an infallible and an errant message. He's given them a word. He's given them a book. Muslims sometimes refer derogatorily towards Jews and Christians as people of the book. I have no problem being a people of a book. We are a community with one book. The people of God have this infallible, this inerrant book that God has given us. We need it for faith. We need it for practice. We need it for godliness. We need it for guidance. The Bible contains all that is necessary to understand what we must do or what saving faith is all traditions, all programs, all uh, methods, everything must be evaluated in the light of Scripture. This is our authority. It is the umbrella over everything that we do as a church, as a people of God, as individuals. The Bible defines what we believe. It's our creed. The Bible tells us what to do. It guides our conduct. The Bible transforms who we are. It molds our character, our creed, our conduct, and our character. Now, I don't want to take your Bible in your hand right now. Everybody grab this book and hold it in your hand right now. And if you don't have one this morning, please, we'll get you one. Do you realize the treasure you're holding in your hand? What you're holding in your hand, I don't think we realize it because... You probably, like me, have more of them at home. We have an abundance of Bibles. As a matter of fact, we've made Bibles sort of a a commodity in our Christian subculture. You can have the the serviceman's Bible, the policeman's Bible, the men's Bible, the women going through PMS Bible, whatever. There's all these different Bibles for all different situations in life. Thousands of different Bibles. And and they become a product, and we just kind of peddle it in our culture today, and we've forgotten What it is that we're holding here. This isn't a product. This isn't just something that that, um, is just neat to have. You are holding the greatest treasure that man can have. You're holding it in your hands. But how precious is this to you? The end of this psalm, as Deemer read, kind of alludes to that. But I want you to watch this clip. Uh, we're going to show a little video real quick here. Uh, it's a little bit, it's, it's going to be about four minutes long, so hang with it. But I want you to watch this video. Make sure the sound's up back there when you guys play the video. And let's go ahead and watch this clip. Pour 
Nana <laughs> Sumnene, 
Nous sommes tous les God's word that much? Is it that precious to you? Or do you just take it for granted? These people celebrate with joyful singing and dancing because they could have this in their language. And we put it on shelves and let it collect dust with our other translations and copies that we have. How precious is this word to you? I want to pray before we go any further. Heavenly Father, I will confess to you that I take your word for granted so, so often. I have it in, on CD-ROM and on DVD and online and in several different translations and several different copies. And so, Lord, I am so much more apt to neglect it because it's not a treasure to me like it should be. So God, I pray, Father, today as we read this psalm and study this psalm, that you would make it our treasure once again. pray in Jesus' name. Amen. had a seminary professor who told a story that he was in a foreign country, maybe not much different than that foreign country, and they had, um, they had a, a stage kind of like this or something. It was a church building. And they had chairs up on the stage for the pastor of that church, for the visiting missionary, and for others. And so he was sitting up there on the stage, and they, got, they, they stand up to sing their first song. And he takes his Bible, and he did what so many of us often do. He set it on the floor underneath his chair. And the people just kind of went, <gasps> And he could tell there was something going on with the people. He didn't understand what. And the pastor of that uh, local congregation had to come to him and say, the Word of God is so precious to us here that we don't put it on the ground. We don't put it on the floor. It has to stay away from where our nasty feet go. That's how precious the Word of God is to so many people around the world. And even right now, there are missionaries working around the clock, translating Bible, actually creating alphabets for languages that don't have an alphabet, so that they can then translate the Bible into that language, and then teach the people their own alphabet, which they didn't know beforehand, so they can read the Bible. Working endless hours doing this like the people did 
for the Kenyals. From Exodus 20 onward, God's tribe, God's people, have been guided by the written word of God above all else. The written word of God has been man's final arbiter of truth. I want to let God's word speak on its own behalf this morning. That's why I went to Psalm 19. We can talk about the reliability of Scripture. I've preached sermons here at Harbin's about the reliability of Scripture, the, the historical evidence for Scripture, the textual evidence for Scripture. We can get into all that technical stuff, and, and I, can, I can show you beyond a doubt that what we have here in our hands is textually can be proven to be an accurate copy of what was written. So we can get into those kind of things if we want to. We can talk about archaeological evidence that it, it continues to support the Bible more and more and more as more discoveries are made. We can talk about um, the prophetic evidence of the Scriptures. But I want to let God's Word tell us this morning about its own authority, about its own sufficiency, about its own clarity, and about our absolute need, necessity of it. So let us look now at this amazing psalm that David wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. You will notice that I do not have any notes uh, for you to follow along in your, your outline there, uh, or on your note page. Normally I create an outline, and, and you know what? I look at this psalm, and David has the perfect outline. You don't need me to try to improve upon the Word of God. It's got it. David did it well right here. So let's just follow along this psalm. And talk a little bit about what David is trying to teach us. First of all, the psalm is broken down into three sections. The first section are verses 1 through 6. Um, this section is talking about the natural revelation of God. This section talks about, or we may call it the general revelation of God. That is, God demonstrating himself through nature. So those first six verses that Dima read is what that's all about. God is speaking and his word is heard from, the, from, from, the, from here to the ends of the earth because nature itself speaks about God. There, you can have knowledge about God simply by looking at nature. You can look at the sun. David talks about how the sun and, and, and how it comes out in the morning. You look at the, the faithfulness of the sun and look at what's happening. And you, you know that there is order. There is, uh, there is a creator. There is someone who is handling all of these things. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork, according to David. Romans 1, 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In the <clears throat> creation of the world, in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Mankind is without excuse. You can know about God by simply seeing God's general revelation. Acts 14, 17 says, He did not leave himself without a witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Yet general revelation is not sufficient for salvation. Man can know something about God, can know much about God, can know about God's moral laws, can know that God exists, and can have knowledge of God gained from nature, but it's not knowledge sufficient to save. And for that, God gave 
special revelation, which is what section 2 of this psalm is all about, the section we're going to focus on, verses 7 through 11. Verses 7 through 11. And then the final section of this passage of Scripture, uh, verses 12 through 14, mainly focus on what our response should be when we think about the fact that God has given us no excuse. And he's, beyond that, he's given us a special revelation of his word. So let's walk through this. Like I said, it's already in outline form. There are six synonyms used for the word of God in this passage. There are six descriptions of the Word of God in this passage. So six synonyms, then six descriptions. And then there are six effects that the Word of God has on the life of all who embrace it. So there's the six synonyms. We see that David calls it the law of the Lord, testimony of the Lord, precepts of the Lord, commandment of the Lord, fear of the Lord, rules of the Lord. The six descriptions, he says it's perfect, it's sure, it's right, it's pure, it's clean, it's true. And the effects, revives the soul, makes wise the simple, rejoices the heart, enlightens the eyes, endures forever, and is righteous all together. So let's look at this first one here. Look at verse 7. It says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The law here is the word, the Hebrew word Torah. Uh, it's the word that came to mean, well, it's the word describing the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, but it goes beyond that. It came to mean much more than that. And it's a word that could be used to describe all of the Jewish scriptures, but certainly the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, are the heart of the Jewish scriptures. And David's David's emphasis here is on the didactic teaching nature of the Bible. It is the law of the Lord. David believed that the Bible, the law, was inspired by God. It was of the Lord. He repeats it six times in this in this outline here, just in case we have any tendency or to forget it. Over and over and over again, he says, of the Lord, of the Lord, of the Lord. David, as should we, believed and received the Bible, God's law, as authoritative for his life. All the words of Scripture are God's words, and therefore, to disobey or disbelieve any part of the Bible is to disobey or disbelieve God. This book, every word, is God's word, and therefore to disobey or disbelieve any of it is to disobey or disbelieve God. 2 Timothy 3.16, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. In 2 Peter 1.21, Peter says, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is our authority for our Christian life. This is our authority. Let's look at the first characteristic here of God's Word. He says, it's perfect. It's perfect. The law of the Lord is perfect. This word perfect could also be translated whole or complete, comprehensive, comprehensive, or it could also be translated sufficient. God's Word, God's law is sufficient. God's word lacks nothing. It needs nothing. God sternly warns us in Deuteronomy chapter 4 and in Revelation chapter 22 not to add or to take away from this book because it's perfect. It doesn't need anything added to it, and we certainly shouldn't take anything away from it. To add to it is to declare that it is insufficient. So Mormons, when they add to the Bible by having the Book of Mormon and declaring it 
at the same level of the Bible, have added to the Scripture, and they have declared that this book is insufficient. This book is not sufficient for you. Any sect that adds to the Bible is declaring it to be insufficient. But it goes beyond that. If anybody stands up and says they have an authoritative prophecy from the Lord, that this is, thus saith the Lord, God is speaking through me, and thus they are adding an infallible, what they believe is an infallible word to this word, they are declaring this to be insufficient. This is not sufficient for you, so you have to hear this man or this woman speak a word from the Lord. They are declaring it to be insufficient. If we add our own opinions to the Scripture and try to update it to fit the times, we are declaring this book to be insufficient. If we let our traditions trump the Word of God, we are declaring this book to be insufficient. And traditions, believe me, Baptists have them just as much as others have them. When we let our traditions take over, we are declaring that this book is insufficient when our traditions trump the Word of God. To add to it is to declare it insufficient, but also to take away from it is to declare it insufficient. The perfect law here, according to the Bible, revives the soul. Revives mean it restores, transforms, or converts. The Bible transforms, converts, and restores the soul. The soul is the inner man, the heart, the real person. The soul, the inner man, the heart is restored, transformed, converted, brought to life, revived. It was cold, it was hard, it was dead, and God's word revives it. David is speaking of salvation here, my friends. He's speaking of a cold, dead heart in need of reviving. And the method to see that happen is God's word. God's word, therefore, is sufficient to save. God's word is sufficient to save. Now what else is David assuming here when he says that God's word is revives the soul? Well, Dave's, David's assuming that the soul is in need of revival. The doctrine of the depravity of man is all over Scripture. And sometimes it's seen in very subtle ways. But David here assumes that the soul is in desperate need of conversion. It's in desperate need of transformation. It's in desperate need of reviving. And the way that the soul experiences and receives that restoration starts right here with the Word. God's Word does the reviving. Romans ten seventeen. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. And so we apply this to our lives and we think about sharing the gospel. Our gospel sharing should be saturated with scripture. My seminary professor named Dr. David Sills, who is probably my favorite seminary professor that I had, who taught uh, on evangelism when I was in seminary, he had us read some different books. We read different books on different methods of evangelism, different books on different approaches of evangelism, books on the theology of evangelism. But he went out of his way to say, you know, I'm not going to spend my time this semester trying to teach you methods. I want you just to get a lot of word in your heart. And so he gave us 40 verses to memorize, verses that we would use in evangelistic situations. He says, you memorize these verses and let them be your tool. And I remember that. That sticks with me. That's basically our, most of our grade was based upon whether or not we memorized those 40 verses for the semester. Because God's word does the reviving. 
So any tract we use, I'm not saying tracts are bad, use tracts. Just make sure they have God's word in them. They're quoting God's word. So use tracts. Use um, gospel tracts. Use different techniques. But make sure God's word is saturating those techniques. And I'll just say this. You have to have the word of God if you're going to convert anyone if God's going to convert anyone, he's going to use his word. Jesus, in any other book, including the Koran, is insufficient. You have to have Bible. I don't care if you see good words about Jesus in the Koran. This is a local issue today because there's an evangelism method out there called Jesus in the Koran, a method of going to the Muslims. But it doesn't use this. It just goes to the Koran and says, look, look at all these good things the Koran has to say about Jesus. I want to say right here, right now, that is totally insufficient. And if you buy into that, you have said this is insufficient because the Bible says this is what revives the soul, not the Koran. The Koran has no power to save. This is what saves right here. This is where the power is. The gospel message found here. So use other techniques, whatever you want to use, but make sure this is central. I care much more about Jesus in the Bible than I care about Jesus in the Koran. And I'd rather share that, even if it means the Muslim hates me and shoots me in the head because I use the Bible instead of the Koran. Because God's law revives the soul. God's law revives the soul. The soul, the inner man. You could stop right there. Just in the psalm right there. And we should be dancing like the Kimyal people. But David goes on. David goes on. Second half of this verse. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Testimony is a divine witness. God is sitting in his own witness chair. And there's a transcript of his witness. And it's right here. It's the Bible. I love that verse we just read a minute ago, Acts 14, 17. He did not leave himself without a witness. He gave us a witness. It could also be, this word witness, could, this word testimony, I mean, could also be translated covenant. God is a covenant maker and he is a covenant keeper. And this testimony is sure This word means immovable, unwavering, reliable, trustworthy. Have any of you ever been on jury duty and actually had to sit through a trial? Raise your hands if you have. Okay, so there's a few of you that can identify with the pain of that situation. All right, that's just not a fun thing to go to jury duty. And I remember I went to jury duty. I even took my Bible and sat it with me and was reading it while I was sitting there hoping they say, hey, this guy with the Bible, don't touch him. I still got selected. I became the foreman of the doggone jury. And I was on this jury, and I remember, it was, it was really a fascinating experience. After it was all said and done, I was actually glad I got the opportunity to experience that. But there was obviously some witnesses who were unreliable. This lady was trying to sue her insurance company for this massive amount of money because she had said she was hurt worse than she really was in this car accident. And her witnesses were totally unreliable. I think I've shared this with you before. She was totally unreliable. She would sit there, she had the big neck brace. I swear it was like a scene out of Perry Mason or something. She had the big neck brace on and was sitting there in her wheelchair. And, you know, and then they would, they would like call for recess or whatever. You know, go, you know, take it. We're taking a recess here. Let's break for a little bit. And so we'd all be leaving. And you look back and she's laughing. She's looking back at people coming to the courtroom and waving at them, twisting around. And she's not hurt. 
she's a phony. Now, we weren't, the judge said you're not supposed to take any of these external things. Only the testimony is what you're supposed to take into account. I couldn't help it. This woman was a liar. She was totally unreliable. But God is not unreliable. He has given us a perfect, sure, immovable, unwavering, trustworthy witness. We can be more sure of the Bible than anything else. If someone tells you they've heard from God, you better check it against the witness. If your heart tells you, if your own heart tells you God wants you to do this or that, you better check it against the witness. If you're watching TV and you see someone do some sort of miracle that they say is from God, you better check it against the witness. If you read a book that tells you God says this or that, I don't care what book it is, I don't care if John Piper wrote it, I don't care who wrote it, if they tell you God said this or that, you better check it against the witness. I want you to look closely at 2 Peter 1, 16. You don't have to turn there, but listen closely. This is Peter. We read part of this section earlier. This is Peter talking about God's word. He said, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen to Peter here. He says, But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, Peter here is about to refer to the experience he had when he was on the mountain with Jesus and Jesus was transfigured before him and James and John. He says, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Peter heard that voice. Peter saw this tremendous experience. Okay, he says this in verse 18. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. Now stop right there. Peter sounds like a pretty reliable witness. He's been on the mountain with Jesus. He saw Jesus transfigured right there before his eyes. Then he sees Moses and Elijah as well. Now you'll remember Peter, he just couldn't keep his mouth shut. He goes up to Jesus, hey, can I make like a tent for you guys? And, you know, he probably should have just gotten on his face at that moment. But the cloud engulfs and, and the voice booms. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. So if Peter were here telling you that experience, you say, wow, he's a, he's a mighty witness for the Lord. Listen to what Peter says about his own witness in verse 19. He says, and we have something more sure. The prophetic word to which you do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter says, I saw all these things, I saw miracles, I have this amazing experience, but this is more sure than my own experiences. Peter wouldn't even put enough faith in his own experiences. He wouldn't put that over the Bible. I don't care what you've experienced. You may have had funny, tingly things run up your spine when you saw a rainbow in the sky right at the moment you asked God to show you a sign. That is nothing compared to this. This is the witness. This is the authority. We don't go around looking for signs. We have a witness. We don't need signs. And Peter says, you know, I, I saw all this... I mean, he saw much more signs and miracles than any of you guys are ever going to hope to see. Or that any super prophet on TBN has ever supposedly seen. And yet he said, I got something much more sure than that. It's the prophetic word of God. 
Peter had seen Christ personally. He had witnessed a miracle on the mountain of transfiguration. He had seen the vision. He would heard the voice of God. And yet scripture was still a sure witness. Perhaps that's why Jesus. Remember the road to Emmaus? On the road to Emmaus. It says that these two disciples are walking along. Remember, Jesus comes up to them. They're all depressed because Jesus, at least as far as they know, is still dead. And they're confused. And it says in Luke 24, 27, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all in all the scriptures the thing concerning himself. If you look at that story, what is, what is the order of things? Jesus explains the scriptures first, and then he reveals himself to them. I think it's for the same reason that Peter was talking about. Because the scripture is a surer witness than some vision or sign or or even a physical manifestation of Jesus Christ right there in their presence. The scriptures were the witness. Church, I heard a horrible story as I was researching this for, for this message. There was a church, I'm not sure where, that believed that the gift of prophecy was, was the type of prophecy today where it's an infallible word coming from men, especially men who are pastors or elders or prophets of the church. And this church felt like they had so much prophecy. They said that God had filled their church with so much prophecy they didn't need the Bible anymore. Matter of fact, believe it or not, this, I'm not going to call it a church, I'll call it a sect, had a Bible burning on their lawn, because they said God had filled them with so much prophecy, they no longer needed the book. That is a tremendous and horrendous sin beyond all measure, and that is not a church. Because the church are a people who know they need the word. The effect here is it makes wise the simple. The word simple here can mean ignorant, undiscerning, unlearned, naive. By God's word, this person, this simple person is transformed into a wise person. This refers to someone who's skilled in all that he does. He's skilled in all that he does. 1 Corinthians 1.18 For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of Of the discerning, I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach. And what do they preach? They preach the word to save those who believe. For Jews demand a sign and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 1. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the world's standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. If this word of God has taken hold of your heart and transformed you, you have no reason to boast. Because you, no matter what degrees might be stuck to the end of your name, are simple and ignorant 
and foolish and unlearned and naive because you're a sinner, just like I am. And therefore, our only hope is to have the wisdom of God take over, and that happens when his word has effect in our hearts. David continues, verse 8, the precepts of the Lord are right. Precepts means principles, guidelines for character or conduct. They're instructions for living. How many of you have ever gotten instructions for a toy that obviously was translated by someone who didn't know a lick of English? It sounds like they just got out an a, a English, whatever, Chinese dictionary and just started writing words. Okay, I got one of those once. And I, I remember once for Noah and Olivia's trampoline that we put together way back when we lived in Arkansas. We still have it. But the, the instructions just made no sense, especially you, you get to like step six. Okay, like on step two, you're supposed to bolt these poles together. And then on step six, it says, before doing step two, slide the sleeve over the pole. I'm by step six by the time I got to, the, I'm like, what? Now, there may have been a disclaimer that says, please read all instructions before continuing. All, they all say that. But still, who put step six at the very end when, when you got to do this? Ah, it was so frustrating. I had to take it all apart and do it over again. God's word is unlike that. The Bible has all we need for guidelines for godly living in it. You do not need James Dobson. John Piper, R.C. Sproul, Spurgeon, Edwards, whoever else your favorite might be, you don't need them for godly living. The Kimyals, all they have is a Bible. They don't have desiring God in Kimyal language. Oh, I saw jaws drop. Oh. They don't have the strong-willed child in Kimyal language. All they have is the Bible. And guess what? It's all they need. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with these other books. These books can be edifying. The problem is they need to fall under the umbrella of the authority of this book. And if they become your primary diet instead of this book, that's when we begin to err. That's when we begin to slip. Now, you may say, wait a second. You mean the Bible has everything we need for living? Yes. And then you might say, well... Let's say I want to become a pilot. Where in the Bible does it teach me how to fly a plane? Well, the sufficiency of Scripture does not mean that the Bible contains all knowledge for all times. But it does mean that all knowledge is guided by and must submit to the principles of Scripture. These truths, these precepts, guide how we apply all of our knowledge. So that when we gain knowledge about how babies are, are, are grown in the womb, we don't apply that knowledge to figuring out how to eliminate those babies. But instead we apply it because the Bible says that life is precious. We apply it to saving babies. So that if you do want to learn to fly a plane, you don't apply that knowledge to taking a plane and flying it into a building. You apply that knowledge to serving people. How can I use what God has given me to serve people? Because this book is the umbrella of authority over everything else I've learned. Luther, Martin Luther wrote, Human reason, with all its wisdom, can bring it no further than to instruct people how to live honestly and decently in the world, and how to keep a house, how to build, etc. Things learned from philosophy and these hedonist books. But how they should learn to know God? And his dear son 
Christ Jesus and to be saved and to live according to that salvation, this the Holy Ghost alone teaches through the Word of God. All of his precepts are right. They're correct. This word right here implies a correct path. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It's the famous verse from Psalm 119 that many of us have memorized. 2 Timothy 3.15, we read part of this earlier. From childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation, sufficient for salvation, through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Okay, it's inerrant. It's from God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be competent, equipped for every, every, every good work. So if God's precepts, his guidelines of life are teaching us and directing us rightly, then we can endure the challenges of the ups and the downs, the good and the bad of life without anxiety, without fear, without worry, without stress. Instead, according to this, the, the effect of believing this is that there's rejoicing in our heart. There's no greater source of joy than to read these promises of God, these truths of God, these words of God, to believe them, to embrace them, and to live them. Jeremiah, who was also known as the weeping prophet, so he had some bad days, some sad days. He's the one who wrote, Your words were found, and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and a delight of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. Do you feel like dancing with the Kimyals? I think the reason I don't dance with the Kimyals is because this book, I treat it more like medicine in my medicine cabinet. Like, like Tylenol, when I get a headache, I run, oh, I've got to go get some Tylenol. And so the pains and the anxieties and the fears of life hit, and I go and I run to this book, which we should, but I run to this book and, and I, I say, oh, God, God, help me, speak to me through the book. But oftentimes I've neglected to be doing that first so that when the trial came, I was ready. This is preventative medicine for the soul as much as it is restorative medicine for the soul. This book right here. David continues. He says, The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The commandment of the Lord. So David uses the word commandment so that he'll show us that God's word is not optional. It's to be kept. It's to be believed. This is not a book of suggestions. This is not a book of opinions. This is not a book of advice. This is not a book of recommendations of how you can have the best life now. These are God's commands, and we are to be in awe of that. This is God's commands. We cannot pick and choose what we want to believe. My second day on the job in my previous church as a children's pastor had a couple come in and sit in my office. They had been referred to me because there was some stuff going on in their life. They were teachers in our, our children's ministry there. And they shared with me a, a situation they were living in that was totally immoral. And I said, listen, guys, you can't be doing it. You've got to change this. You've got to stop this lifestyle. And, and you can't teach here. You've got to stop this and repent. And he stood up to me, and he was a big guy, probably six foot four, 200 and something pounds, big guy. And he put his fist on my desk and said, God told me it was okay for us to do this. And I, all five foot eight of me, stood up with the Bible in my hand. And I said, God does not contradict himself. Because God told me what you're doing is wrong. And he stormed out of my office. He wrote a five-page letter to our pastor telling me what a horrible person I was. 
We cannot pick and choose what we want to believe in this book. It's all there for us, and it is all a command. It says here, David says it's pure. The word pure here can be translated clear or lucid. We already know that the Bible's perfect without error, but David gives us this word to show us that the Bible is clear. It has clarity about it. Let me say this. The reformers were willing to die for this doctrine of the clarity of Scripture, or what they would call the perspicuity of Scripture. We do not need a priest to interpret this for us. We do not need a pastor to interpret this for us. We do not need another book or a commentary. The Bible itself is clear and can be clearly understood. The reformers fought for that. That's why they fought for the Bible for, for worship services to be done in the native tongue, in the common tongue of the people. Before the Reformation, all worship services were done in Latin. And most of the people could not speak Latin. And they would sit there and just listen. And the priest would tell them what they needed to do. And before the Reformation, the Bible was only available in Latin. And so the Reformers fought for services to be conducted in the common tongue. And the Reformers fought and died for the Bible to be able to be translated into our language, the Kimyal language. Reformers died for simply taking a text of Scripture and copying it into the common tongue. They were burnt at the stake for that. And here we stand with our Bible in our English and just take it for granted. This book, the reason it's in our common language, the reason the Kimyal people can have it as much as the most sophisticated people on the earth is because it's clear. God's word is clear and his will can be clearly understood and discerned from the scriptures. Why on else would God tell us in Deuteronomy 6 to teach it to our children? Because children can understand it as well. Now, does that mean there's nothing difficult in Scripture? No, there are some hard things to understand in the Bible. Peter even talks about that in 2 Peter Peter 3.16. He mentions that. But taken as a whole, the Bible is clear. It's lucid. It's pure. Well, you say, well, why do we need preachers then? Well, because God ordained for his word to be preached. And God ordained there to be shepherds. And God put responsibility on certain people in the church to teach other people in the church. That does not mean that this word is unclear. You can study it on your own. You don't have to have Demer take you from Genesis to Revelation. You can do that. We all can do that. Well, you might say, well, how come there's all these differences? And if it's so clear, how come all these differences emerge? Well... It's because, as clear as the Scripture is, we are still looking through a mirror dimly because we are sinners. The mirror is dim not because the Word is dim. The mirror is dim because we are sinners. We are the ones dimming the mirror, according to 1 Corinthians 13, 12, when it says we see in a mirror dimly. But then, when he comes back face to face, I know in part now, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Why else are there differences, so many different denominations? Well, first of all, there's false teachers. Okay, the Bible told us there would be those who come and distort the word. That's going to happen. It does happen. It happens all the time. Go surf the channels today. You can find some. Poor hermeneutics. Poor interpretation of Scripture. There's lots of people that have not learned how to handle the word of God. 
They haven't taken the time to learn how to handle the Word of God. 2 Timothy 2.15 challenges us to rightly divide this Word. And also, just because we're sinners. We're just sinners, guys. And therefore, we're going to mess up. And therefore, there's going to be differences. And when we all get to heaven, God will sort it all out. Where we have to have unanimity and agreement is with the gospel. I love groups like the Gospel Coalition and Together for the Gospel and, and groups like that because this is where our focus is. This is where we have to be in total agreement. There are some other things that we, like Peter said, that are hard to understand. And I interpret it this way, you interpret it that way. And we get to heaven, God will sort it all out and everybody will be Baptist. Right? Maybe. Probably not. But until then, we know that what we need for salvation and what we need for godly living can be clearly seen in this book. It enlightens the eyes. It opens our eyes to the truth. It opens blind eyes to see. Sure, natural revelation shines some light, but the Bible opens the eyes so that light can shine on the heart and revive the man. Do you need light on any situation of your life? Then you go to the light of the Word of God and let it enlighten your eyes. So in light of God's Word being a command, then awe is expected. Verse 9, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Obviously, David here is using synonyms for the Bible. So when he gets to this one, he says the fear of the Lord is clean. He's using fear as a synonym for the Scriptures. Fear of the Lord is the reverential awe that we should all have in the face of God's glory and God's revelation. We are all to fear the Lord. We cannot worship rightly without fearing the Lord. The Bible is God's self-revelation. Therefore, fear flows from it. And we stand in awe as we read this book, or at least we should. It is itself a source of godly, righteous fear. And it says it's clean. This means there's the absence of anything impure, no defilement, no filth. It's without imperfections. It's without corruption. God's word is infallible. It's inerrant. Either it's clean and without corruption or it's totally void. That's the only choice you have. There's no middle ground here. As Baptists, we fought this battle. We fought this battle hard in the late 70s for the inerrancy of the word. Lots of people left the denomination because of it. It's either totally without corruption or it's totally void. This is not a buffet for you to say, oh, this is right. Oh, that one's wrong. Oh, this one's right. That's wrong. That's, that's a mistake. The Bible doesn't work that way. It's clean and therefore it endures forever. The words of the Lord are pure words like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times according to David in Psalm twelve six. Impurities are burnt up. Corruption is refined. But the Bible has none of that. Therefore, it endures forever. The Bible is perfect for all generations. Jesus said in Mark 13, 31, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words will not pass away. It is as right and as good today as it was 2,000 years ago. It does not change with the times. I was sitting at seminary. Actually, it was at another seminary, Southwestern Seminary. I went to Southern. Make sure you get that straight, not Southwestern. At Southwestern Seminary, I was there, though, for one class, and i actually glad I didn't go there because we were sitting in the lobby, and I had some of my friends with me, and there were some, there were some ladies sitting there in this lobby of this, this student area, and this discussion came up about women in ministry. 
And one of the ladies said this, something along these lines. She said, you know, it's time for us Baptists just to realize we need to bring the Bible into the 20th century, 21st century. It's time to update the Bible is basically what she was saying. Because she believed that women should be able to be pastors and elders, lead pastors of the church. And she said that the Bible's antiquated because it teaches against that. And she said it's time to fix it. It's time to update the Bible. The Bible is never outdated. It is never in need of editing. It is never in need of any sort of cultural adjustment. It is always culturally relevant. The Bible endures forever. We don't take the Bible and let it be updated or let it come under the authority of the culture. Instead, we take the culture and put it under the authority of Scripture and say, yes, we can and we can't do this or that. It's not vice versa. And that will make you unpopular as our culture continues to slip away from biblical truth. Let's just face it. You will continue to be unpopular. If you are hoping, if popularity is important to you, then don't be a person of the book. Because the Bible will not allow for you to be popular in a culture that stands in many ways against the Bible. Let's, let's finish this message out. I know it's later than normal, but we're going to finish what David has to say. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Rules or judgments or verdicts. God's divine verdict is found in Scripture. God is the supreme judge of all the earth, and he'll do what is just and right. And his judgments are true, and they're righteous altogether. The world cannot know truth apart from Scripture. Psalm 119 says in verse 160, The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endure, endures forever. And Jesus said this in John 17, 17, Sanctify them with the truth. Your word is truth. Notice closely that Jesus does not say to his Father, your word is true. He says your word is truth. This is the standard by which we measure all other truths. It is what we define truth with. It is how we know what is true and false. We judge everything else by it. Therefore, we must be people of the book. We must be Bereans. Acts 17, 11, We preached this not too long ago. Well, I guess it was a while ago now. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. He's referring to the Berean Jews. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed. These Bereans, they heard the witness of Paul. Paul's talking about how he's seen Jesus. They may have even knew about this Paul guy. He used to persecute the church. But that wasn't enough for them. They had a surer witness. It was the Bible. Just like what Peter said. The Bible is our final authority. And therefore it is what we examine before we make any decision in life. Before we do anything. How often I fail. Just simple decisions. Maybe just a simple response I give to someone without thinking about it biblically first. Do you feel like dancing yet? Do you know what's in your hands? This psalm ends, it says in verse 10 and 11, More to be desired are they, the word of God, than gold, even much fine gold. Noah was watching a documentary yesterday, or the day before, on gold mines in South Africa. He's, he's cut out the same mold as I am. He enjoys that kind of stuff. He has 
He was watching a documentary on gold mines in South Africa. And it was really cool. They had this big elevator. It had to go way, I don't remember how far it was deep, Noah, but way deep. But I remember I just kind of went in and out of the room. And one scene, they are going down into this mine, and they're looking for gold. And they find a little bit of gold. And the, the person who was on the show, he had this gold flake in his hand. He says, this is what it's all about. They do all this technology, all this digging, all this hard work. He said, this is what it's all about. Friends, what you hold in your hand is what it's all about. This is to be more desired than gold, even much fine gold. This is sweeter than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. The Kimyaw people, they lived 10 and 11. They, what they saw coming on that plane was something more precious than gold. Sweeter than the sweetest honey they could find on the island. That's what this book is. Treasure it. God has given us an infallible word. You may be wondering, well, David, if you're talking to David as you're reading the psalm, like I do sometimes, David, where's repentance? Doesn't God's word drive you to repentance? Well, yes, it does. <laughs> That's how the psalm ends. After David's considered all these wonders of God's word, he ends the psalm saying, Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Are you struggling with a sin that has dominion over you? The way you fight that is with this, this book. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. That's how we respond when we've looked at how great God's word is. That's how we respond when we think about this treasure that we hold. It should drive us to our knees in humility and repentance. Pride should not exist in the church. It does. Goodness gracious, does it ever. But it shouldn't. Because when this light of this word is shined on our heart, we should see so much, ugh, that it drives us to a place of humility that we can't go in our own strength. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Ultimately, this book points to a rock, and it points to a redeemer, Jesus Christ. It's all about him. And David, looking forward, knowing that he needed a redeemer, he needed someone to forgive him of his sins. He was a man after God's own heart, and yet he cried out for a redeemer. And so today, as we consider this book, I want you to consider what this book points to. It points to the cross it points to the gospel. So if you're here this morning and you have this false assumption that this is a book of rules, that this is a book about heroes and great stories, you're misunderstanding. This is a story of redemption. It's a story of God sending his son to save the world. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes and let's pray. And Mark, I'm going to make a request because I went so late. That you just lead us in the one first line of how firm a foundation as we close, all right? Pray.
Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray now that you would um, uh, guide us and strengthen us, Lord, by your word. God, I just, I confess, even this morning, as I was driving here with my son Noah, and the two of us began talking about something, and my own attitude was just horrible. And I know my attitude has been in the tank for like weeks. You allowed your word to rush into my mind for Matthew 7, where you told, tell me not to judge, lest you be judged. And the measure that I use in my own judgment towards other people will be used against me. And so, God, I have whined and complained about, I can't believe someone was so harsh towards me, and yet I have failed to see my own harshness. Your word cut to my heart this morning. It wasn't a psychology book or anything else. It was your word. So God, let us store it in our hearts so that it'll come back like a knife if it needs to. Or like a healing balm if it needs to. No matter what situation we're facing right now. So God, cause us to be people who repent. Show us our hidden faults, Lord. Forgive us of our iniquities. Don't let us fall into presumptuous sins. Lord, save us. Jesus, our rock and our redeemer, our only hope. And in that name we pray. Amen. Please stand if you would. Listen to this first verse of How Firm a Foundation. Mark, maybe just sing it a couple of times. Um, let's just sing this verse of this great old hymn. Respond at this time as the Lord's leading you with your offerings and with your prayer requests. All right, let's sing this together. Firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord. Thank you that you are a refuge to us. May your word be sweeter than honey in our mouths, sweeter than honey to our taste. May our eyes see it as richer um, and better than much fine gold. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Okay, um, I'm not going to keep you long here because uh, we're running late. Um, uh, however, just want to let you know, remind you that there is no second hour today uh, with Bible studies and Rewind. Uh, it's Mother's Day, so we wanted to give you a little bit of extra time to uh, spend honoring moms today uh, with, your, with your family. So uh, please do that. Uh, 
I will close us in prayer. If you are a mom, though, can you stand? Because I'm going to pray for the moms specifically right now. And if you have an unborn child, you can stand too. (laughs) All right. Let's pray together. Father, I pray over these moms right now, Lord. Um, You have given them a very special, important, and honorable role as a mom. And their moms here in different stages of their motherhood. Uh, Father, you have given moms an opportunity to to image you and display things about you in, in, in a way that us guys maybe can't quite do it the same way. Uh, aspects of your tenderness and uh, of your of your nurturing and of your of your care, Father. I know there's no perfect moms in this room right now, Lord. And all these moms have areas in their lives where they need to grow and to be the kind of mom that you want them to be. So, Father, I pray right now in Jesus' name that they would grow and flourish and develop into those kinds of women that you want them to be. Uh, that their uh, that their children would would call them blessed. And that you would be glorified in how they, how they respond to the call of motherhood. I pray that you would help them in that so that they will bring glory to you. Father, for the rest of us, help us to, uh, to honor these women, to respect these women, uh, to encourage these women. Help us not to be grateful uh, for, uh, for our moms. And, uh, or uh, I'm sorry, help us not to take our moms for granted. And, uh, and Father, I, I pray for all of us as we disperse that you would uh, help us to live lives that are honoring to you, God, uh, so that people will look at us and say, what a great God, what a great God. I pray it in Jesus' name, amen, and God bless you, and go in peace.